Well, thanks for joining me for part three of Romans 8, and this is going to be all about the cross and resurrection. And let me explain why. A few weeks ago, I said that I believe Romans 8 is the great asystemic systematic theology in all of Paul's writings, meaning all of the theology of the new covenant of the way of Jesus is in here. It's just kind of all over the chapter. So for six different weeks, we're going to be pulling apart different verses and then putting them into a different order so that we can talk about uh, the baseline of the Christian life, a vision of humanity's past and the reason for uh, Jesus's incarnation. That's part two. Today's, which is again, the cross and resurrection. Then will come the Holy Spirit, the life of union, and the call of God, what it actually means to really walk with him. So again, we've already talked about that baseline, like where do we live our life above, and then the meaning and the reason for the incarnation. But today, oh, this is so exciting, as always, whether you're near Easter right now or not, to think about the cross and resurrection is everything. So I did this last week. Let's do it again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come back to Calvary. We come back to your suffering, your plan, your willingness to do everything it took to win us back. And we just want to be honest about the fact that at times this has become routine for us. We, we, we know the cross. We, we have all our theologies about it. We, we even think about Easter and we just intone those words. He is risen indeed without deep in our belly, really feeling and knowing it to be the case. So Lord Jesus, would you make us so mindful right now, so completely alive to your presence that everything we talk about here, even if it's something we already somewhat know, would become fresh. So thank you, Jesus, that you've already done it all. It is finished. And I pray we would take hold of that today. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Now, friends, one gets the sense when you read of Satan's attempt to tempt Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry, especially in Luke's particular ordering of events, well, you get an, an idea of exactly what he was up to. Uh, he wanted to confront Jesus with the immediately material, hey, turn this stone into a loaf. Then, with that trapdoor of what I would call self-centric self-worship, hey, look, you can have all of this power and magnificence for yourself. And finally, with dishonoring God, the Father, by turning him into something he's not. Do you remember that temptation? Throw yourself down. Just let him take care of it. Those are the three attacks, the, the material, the role of the self, and against the preeminence of God. These are the three places that Satan went after with Jesus. And we can imagine, too, that all throughout his three ministry years, Satan kept attacking him in those places. I mean, I think he kept whispering in his ear all the same sorts of messages. Like, are you sure that the world itself is not what life's about, Jesus? Jesus, look at these crowds. You could be the conquering king they want. Or do you really think a good heavenly father would have you languishing up here in the Galilee? Are you sure he has your very best in mind? Or actually, let's fast forward a little towards today's subject matter. Imagine those lines of attack in the stillness of Gethsemane, 
Like imagine Jesus's blood dropping to the ground like those beads of sweat that were like blood amidst temptations, amidst words like these. Jesus, why release your grip on life and its pleasures and all your potential remaining years for the sake of some strange will you think the Father has in mind for you? Or, Jesus, think about how they loved you last Sunday, those palm branches, the hosannas. Why would you relinquish that now? Or, what if he doesn't bring you back from the dead? You claim he will, but what if not? Friends, I would say, when Jesus strides toward the approaching detachment of soldiers, just gives himself over to them, he's actually already finished with the first phase of his work at the cross. On our behalf, he is disarming the power of human nature, our predilection towards sin, by negating the power of the material, the self, and that brokenness between man and God. He is saying to Satan, you've tried those lines. They have never worked against me, and soon I will change the way all humanity need no longer listen to your voice. But you know what? Let's do something a little scandalous, shall we? It's a little screw tapey. From that moment on, I want us to imagine the point of view of Satan as he was watching that Thursday and Friday. Think about it. Jesus is arrested. Aha, Satan thinks. He's either going to break under physical pain or he's going to have to show his power now in a big, purely material way. Next, Jesus is put on religious trial. Here we go, Satan thinks. Now he will have to exert his spiritual power, like make himself worshipped, overwhelm mankind's will with a non-subtle version of who he is. Finally, Jesus is put on Roman trial before Pilate. All right, Satan thinks. Now he won't have a choice. He'll have to resort to some sort of God trick to make Rome look bad so he can slip out of this tight spot. Think about it. The arrest, the religious trial, the Roman trial, Satan still thinks he can defeat Jesus with the material, the self, and a false version of who God is. Well, hours pass. Jesus is now hanging on a cross. And I don't think it's too difficult to imagine what Satan thought, what he might have felt in looking at Jesus hanging there, seemingly helpless, defeated, broken. In fact, imagine now the evil one hiding himself there amidst those scoffing crowds, kind of chuckling to himself as he listened to Jesus' own words there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Satan's probably thinking something like, yeah, good luck with that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Satan just smirks, kind of shakes his head. And then finally, it is finished to telestai. And Satan might have thought to himself, yes, it is. So friends, why am I walking you through all of this? What's my purpose in having you thinking all the way from the temptation to the cross? 
well, have you ever considered what Satan wanted out of all of this? Like what he hoped would transpire from the death of Jesus? Or to put it another way, do you know from the moment of the fall to the instant of the cross and resurrection what Satan had always had in mind? Your spiritual death and eternal judgment. You sitting there in the defendant's seat with an infinitely long, infinitely detailed accounting of all the ways you had transgressed God's perfection in the material within yourself and in the perfect sight of God. Friends, how he relished the thought of just throwing the perfection of God in your teeth to perfectly point out the reason for your eternal separation from God. I mean, he could not wait to drag you from that courtroom out of the presence of the perfect judge and into the torture of everlasting darkness. That's what he was thinking about when he heard, it is finished. Jesus finished, you finished. Wait a minute. What's that? Why is the midday darkness suddenly clearing over Jerusalem? Why is there a a fresh breeze blowing over the earth? Why does Jesus, even in death, hanging up there limply from a cross, still seem to hold a certain power? Why is that thief still alive, still slowly dying the death of crucifixion, now smiling to himself and whispering of, today, in paradise? And why in the world is he, the evil one, suddenly feeling the overwhelming, unstoppable presence of God as the Holy Spirit of God rushes through the rent veil out of the Holy of Holies. Friends, what was Jesus doing at the cross? I mean, what was the meaning of the resurrection that we just celebrated here in 2021? Well, now I want to flip it. I want you to consider the, the, the final courtroom scene as seen from heaven. This is exactly the opposite of what Satan intended. This is what we get thanks to that finished work of Jesus. Your present spiritual alive living life and eternal freedom in him. Jesus, the judge himself, taking your place in the place of judgment with an already decided, canceled in blood, non-accounting of all the ways he's manifested his own perfection in the material within yourself and in the perfect sight of God on your behalf. He's already done it. I mean, friends, how he relishes the thought of covering your life in the perfection of God to just go ahead and perfectly point out the reason for your eternal union now with God. He couldn't wait for you to just come stumbling into that courtroom to find the perfect judge already in your place, having already paid the price, now inviting you into glory. That's what he was doing when he shouted, it is finished. Satan finished. You beginning. So with all that as preamble, Let's go ahead and listen now to what I'm calling uh, part three 
of Paul's asystemic, systematic theology from Romans 8. This is from verse 3b and then 31 through 34. And while Christ was actually taking upon himself the sins of men, God condemned that sinful nature. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need? Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Let's just take a quick walk back through those verses. Let me read again. And while Christ was actually taking upon himself the sins of men, God condemned that sinful nature. Now, here's a question. Did you know that from the very beginning of the church, like all the way back to the early church days up till now, there has actually never been one clear theology of the mechanics of the atonement? I mean, of course, there are all kinds of opinions about how it all works, how our sin was covered by his blood, his death, but there has never been one overriding, precise, agreed upon, this is exactly how it happens sort of statement, even all the way back to the writings of the early church fathers who had such proximity to the events and the original 12. So, I kind of delight in the simplicity of that statement I just read to you from verse 3. Christ was actually taking upon himself the sins of men, and then it's corollary, God condemned that sinful nature. To put it in even simpler terms, our sin was put upon Jesus. He died with it. It died with him. Friends, you and I stand on the other side of history from the sinful nature. Do you know that? Like between us and it is Jesus on the cross. And I was reading this past week, and perhaps you've already heard something like this before, but the writer I was reading from very clearly made this following point. No matter how people explain their own theology of the mechanics of the atonement, the important thing is that we all agree with the definition that's found right there in the English word. Atonement. Better yet, at-one-ment. What Jesus did on the cross has set us free from sin and has given us opportunity to be at one in union with God. The cross rebridges the divide started in Eden. I mean, the cross really begins a new union Eden. And let's imagine that place. It's called the kingdom of heaven, by the way. What is it like? Well, I'll read the rest. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need? Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? 
The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. So friends, where are we on this side of the cross and resurrection? I mean, what is life meant to be like for those who are already atoned for? Well, here again are Paul's descriptions, just as simple as I can make them. Are you ready? God himself is for you. And no one can stand against him, against you. He did not hesitate to give his own son to set you free. You can personally trust him for every single thing in your life. No one can accuse you. Why? Because God himself has chosen you. He, the only righteous judge, has already said, already said, that you are free from sin. No one on earth can condemn you. Why not? Because the only one who might have, Jesus the Christ, has already and for all time taken this position. He personally died for you. He thought of you at the moment of his resurrection. He is on the throne of heaven right now on your behalf. And he loves to pray for you by name. Friends, it's almost hard to try and wrap it all up, but here we are at the end of my recording for you. And I'll just put it to you this way. Instead of Satan's stacked deck show trial, with you as that lone defendant sitting there in the dock, all of what I just gave you, all of what I just read to you, verses 31 through 34, well, that's what you get instead. That is what the cross and resurrection bought for you. And by the way, your life now is the time. Today is the day to take possession of all that's yours. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, friends, for listening.